This is the Shift Podcast. Ryan O'Donnell's here with me. I'm Shane Hewitt. We did actually some Ukraine history a while ago. We did a part of Game Showy. There were some really telling things that we talked about uh, here uh, with that. And I wanted to start this conversation with uh, some perspective on Canada to Ukraine. We talked about how compressed Europe is. And I had Ukraine all wrong. I thought it was on the other side. I thought you, Germany was on this side and Ukraine was on that side. I did realize what I've learned here is an awful lot of European geography. I had no idea. But how close is it? Let's create some comparisons based on kilometers, not as the crow flies, but to drive. Basic Google map kilometers. So uh, Kiev in, Ger- in Ukraine to Berlin. It's basically a west drive straight shot through Warsaw, Poland to Berlin. How far is that? Well, according to Google Maps, that's 1,345 kilometers. Let me give you a comparison to that. From Toronto to Thunder Bay is 1,398 kilometers. And that road is not a straight shot. That is uh, kind of winds around, right? Lake Superior and all those. So if you keep in mind that Berlin to Kiev is closer than Thunder Bay to Toronto, that gives you some perspective on how this impacts Europe. Give you another example. You think of Kiev and you think of Ukraine. Well, what would be the biggest city, the furthest away from that in Europe? Well, that's going to be London, England, right? Again, another straight shot west with a little ferry ride or tunnel. So that drive from Kiev to Ukraine, excuse me, from Kiev, Ukraine to London, England, is 2,410 kilometers, basically straight through Warsaw, Poland. You get through Berlin. You go through the southern end of the Netherlands, through Belgium. You skip by Paris, and you you, you catch a, a ferry or tunnel across to London. 2,410 kilometers. Give you some perspective on that. It's 2,300 kilometers in a not straight shot from Vancouver to Winnipeg. So when we talk about how close this is happening, we have to think about this from the perspective of what we know today. So the safest, biggest city in Europe, you would have to imagine, comparatively speaking to Canada, would be Vancouver compared to Winnipeg. And a big city like Berlin, which is not far away, is the difference of less than Toronto to Thunder Bay. That adds some incredible perspective on how um, how close some of these different places are. Now, here on The Shift, when we had some fun with this, we did learn some things, Ryan O'Donnell, about the history about Ukraine. Um, uh, for example, ten, for example, like there's a long history of Ukraine back in the 10th, 11th centuries. What were some of the names that it went by? Can you help us remind us from the game showy bit we did a little while ago? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so in the 10th and 11th century, Ukraine was actually the center of a very powerful state in Europe, uh, and back then it was called Kievan Rus, which makes sense, right? The which Kiev. makes sense. Yeah, uh, the way that we used to spell Kiev. K-I-E-V, um, and then Rus, of course, with, with Russia. So that's a good example of how long. People say, uh, Catherine had texted, well, why now? Why does this happen now? Well, I don't know why now. I can tell you that it seems like if history has any has any indication that Vladimir Putin loves to do things around the Olympics, 
Um, but this has been going on for a thousand years, right? This kind of history in this area of the world. Now, how long we've heard that um, Russia says that Ukraine is part of Russia, that Russia created Ukraine so it can take it back again. These are some of the political conversations that have been happening. Ryan, how long has Ukraine been independent from when it was the USSR? Do you have that number from our uh, game show? Well, I can't I can't do quick maths, but I can tell you the year that they became independent. Yeah. It would be 1991. It was right after the Soviets uh, had to deal with a coup to remove Gorbachev, which they were threatened that communism would end. That right. coup failed miserably, and immediately the Ukrainians took advantage of it and succeeded from uh, the uh, Soviet Union and uh, became an independent state, 1991. All right, so there you go. Uh, imagine that, Ryan, a young man, 26 years old. That generation has known, that's the only generation that has known Ukraine as Ukraine. So 30 years ago. That's the number. This is the Shift Podcast. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent here on the Shift. Uh, well, I wish we were talking on different circumstances, my friend, but thanks for making time for us because it's very late where you are. Uh, latest update that you know from your perspective and then ask some questions about what the United States is up to. Yeah, I mean, look, for the last uh, two and a half hours or so, pretty much after uh, the Russian military was given a go-ahead by uh, the Kremlin to move into eastern Ukraine, we have seen kind of social media become this window into the reality that's playing out across uh, the country, uh, showing that there are images of what appear to be fireballs uh, in the sky or explosions uh, on the ground, uh, showing that there are missile deployments that are being launched from uh, the Russian military, from uh, the the rebel uh, separatists in eastern parts of Ukraine, but we're also hearing uh, from Russian news agencies, be it TASS or be it Interfax, uh, that Russian troops have actually landed uh, in southern parts of Ukraine as well through Mariupol uh, and in towards Odessa. Uh, Those would be Ukrainian uh, government territory that could potentially be seen as an even further uh, escalation. There are air raid sirens going off. We have the government that's been uh, telling people to remain at home, not to go to work. We've seen that the Ukrainian president has put uh, martial law into effect. So it's a very fluid situation. Uh, Things are kind of happening by the minute. But the stress, the worry and the concern is really hanging heavy. Absolutely, it is. So the uh, tweets have come out from all of the various leaders. Uh, UN had a meeting. Uh, How is America's look on this from the United States? And I'm assuming that tomorrow morning is going to be the day, or I should say uh, Thursday morning is going to be where the speeches begin and the posturing begins with sanctions and what's next. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, you know, almost an hour after uh, the the assault uh, started up, there was a phone call uh, between the Ukrainian president and U.S. President uh, President Joe Biden, uh, where there was uh, kind of a repeated uh, note that there is going to be an influx of world and global support into Ukraine uh, in order to allow them to push back on this Russian offensive that's making its way through. You're right about the United Nations Security Council, uh, an emergency meeting convened late Wednesday night in an attempt to try and stave off an attack. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations telling Vladimir Putin to bring the troops back to the barracks and 
bring uh, the diplomats back to the table. Uh, but it really is hard to see how, uh, you know, any kind of arm of diplomacy could still be extended here, given uh, just the the kind of severe or outrageous, or as we're hearing some European leaders call it, barbaric uh, invasion by Russia into Ukraine over the last couple of hours. You're right, there are going to be talks uh, about sanctions. There are questions, though, as to whether that's going to work. Well, it hasn't really worked up to this point. Threatens uh, Threats of all kinds of things, but here it is at the poker table, and the chips and the cards are down. Uh, Reggie, is there anything else that we've missed so far here to just get an update? And I'm asking that honestly because the information is moving so quickly. I don't want to miss anything before I let you go. Well, I think what's important here is that this this offensive by the Russian military was, uh, you know, taken out because of what we heard from Russian President Vladimir Putin say that the Ukrainian government was aggressive, that their behavior was aggressive, and that they were carrying out a quote-unquote genocide against ethnic Russians in eastern parts uh, of the country. Obviously, that's an unsubstantiated claim. It is likely uh, was to be used as a pretext for this invasion to try and bring Ukraine back under some kind of Russian control here. Uh, There were concerns that this would move beyond rebel-held regions in Ukraine, and we are now hearing blasts are being reported far from those rebel-held regions all the way up through uh, areas of Kiev where air raid sirens are sounding. So if this becomes an all-out offensive in through the entire country of Ukraine, that obviously does things to put threats towards the borders with NATO. NATO has said they're not going to go into Ukraine, so it really is going to be um, a, a moment to see how the West is able to respond to this, how they're able to back uh, uh, the Ukrainian government, both financially, militarily, uh, and and logistically, which we've heard that they are all going to do. But this is very new. There's a lot that's still unknown. There's a lot of questions that are out there. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the world is now waiting to see whether rules-based order uh, remains under threat or what the reasoning is for, for the Kremlin to be doing this. Have you heard any governments release any information about Putin's speech yet? It was quite uh, pragmatic in the anybody who tries to get in the way, I'm paraphrasing, uh, is going to meet resistance to a level that the world's never seen before. Paraphrasing um, with that. Have we had any official statements been released uh, to you yet regarding his speech? I- no, look, most people are concerned about the situation uh, in Ukraine, but m- much like when you have this kind of posturing from uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, most Western leaders will simply try to tamp it down by saying that, that the, the Russian president is living in a false reality right now. He's living in a time where empires ran the world, and he's trying to get back into that. And and to, to see Russia try to push back on the West saying, don't get in my way, all it does is allow for Western leaders to stand up to say that we are going to get in your way. You already know that there are sanctions on you. They've been on you since you annexed Crimea all those years ago. Uh, we've already heard from a number of leaders say, look, by the time we meet today, including that G7 uh, conversation that takes place in just a few hours, there are going to be even more financial restrictions. One of the most uh, intense rest- uh, uh, sanctions that could be placed uh, was a threat from the White House to potentially sanction Russian President Vladimir Putin himself. It would be an unprecedented move, but given the point that we are at now in this escalation that has turned out to an all-out war, as we're hearing from the Ukraine and foreign ministry, uh, this could be a moment for an economic squeeze on the Russian government, uh, the likes of of which that country may have never experienced. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, Reggie. Thank you. This is The Shift Podcast. 
I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift. Brendan Kelly, Ryan O'Donnell join us here as well. We have a guest who we've had on The Shift before. You know him, Orest Zakaldowski. He's with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, ucc.ca, senior policy advisor as well. Orest, are you with me? I am. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you very much for being here, Orest. Uh, this is a dreadful, dreadful night for you tonight. Can you help me understand the perspective of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress and what uh, you guys are going through right now to support the people? So this is a uh, declaration of war by Russia against Ukraine. Uh, Russia is carrying out attacks in all, all uh, parts of Ukraine from the air. Uh, this is a criminal regime that is committing war crimes, uh, and Russia needs to be fully isolated from the international community immediately, and Ukraine needs weapons with which to defend itself today, uh, like right now. Uh, most importantly, they need anti-aircraft systems like Stinger missiles, and uh, I mean, I think that a no-fly zone over Ukraine should be implemented by uh, Ukraine's allies to protect Ukrainian civilians from Russian bombardment. Because this is this is uh, uh, what we saw tonight. What we're seeing right now is something that has not been seen in Europe uh, since World War II. Uh, this is a, a profoundly, profoundly devastating day for the Ukrainian people and for Ukraine and for European security and, frankly, global security. Uh, so the Ukrainian Congress, uh, Canadian Congress, represent Ukrainian Canadians, you know, before the government of Canada. Uh, the government has recently come and, and pledged more, more troops and more info. Uh, you've you've also shared, of course, some specifics there for military action. Uh, what do you say right now? I mean, you've got your national platform, Orest. Um, you know, what do you need to see? Uh, you know, as a policy advisor for the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, what do you want to see from Ottawa now? So, I think tomorrow morning, what we need to see is serious sanctions against the uh, against Russia and the Russian regime. Uh, the uh, uh, banning of Russia from the SWIFT international payment system, which is the banking system. Russian assets in the West need to be uh, seized immediately. Uh, the Russian central bank needs to be uh, sanctioned. Uh, and and most, and also Ukraine needs weapons from its Western allies uh, to defend itself. So those are, that, that is the, the two things that need to be done like right now, and uh, Ukrainian civilians need protection from from air bombardment by Russia. So I think that a, a NATO no-fly zone over Ukraine is is something that needs to be seriously considered and seriously considered immediately before these uh, uh, before even more devastation hits Ukraine. So, Orest, when we chatted last week. You had sort of uh, mentioned to me uh, in the spirit of strength and power from the Ukrainian people uh, that nobody in Ukraine is asking any other country to fight their battle for them. Um, and, and that was a very profound moment that you and I had shared in last week. When we see such swift action come from Russia, you know, what they've basically said was, you know, taking out any ability to fight back in those um, eastern states whether that's air defenses and military uh, air force and whatnot. Um, is this one of those things where uh, the world needs to step in or what is the view of the Ukrainian uh, Canadian Congress um, step in and help or just still supply items and support? 
Well, I think the no-fly zone is something that that allies should certainly do. Uh, Ukraine has an has an army, and it has uh, its people are ready to fight, and they they need the tools with which to do that. They need weapons deliveries now, um, and so uh, no one is saying that uh, uh, NATO troops should be fighting uh, Russian troops, but. Uh, a no-fly zone is certainly something that's been done in other places uh, uh, to prevent civilian loss of life and, and should be done here. And we will be communicating that to the government at the earliest opportunity. And I thank you for the uh, chance to do that here as well. Uh, but this is I asked you day... last week. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no I, I just I, I think it is important for your listeners to to realize that um, this is, although not happening in our backyard, this is a day that uh, the world has has changed. There is a there is a before February twenty fourth, and there is an after February twenty fourth. Uh, yeah, I was. My parents go to bed early, actually, and I was having that moment where I was messaging my parents saying, "When you wake up this morning, this world's going to be a much different place." I asked you last week, Orst, um, what can Canadians? do our shift head community that is listening listening here at nighttime you know working driving all those things uh, listening at home what does the ucc uh need um the ukrainian canadian congress what does what does ukrainian canadian congress need from ukrainian or uh, canadian excuse me to do uh there will be um uh, massive humanitarian uh devastation from today and from what is coming in the next days and we are asking people to uh, visit our website we have a, a humanitarian relief fund set up and so if anyone can donate uh, that would be much appreciated you can go to ucc.ca and find out how to do that uh, and please you know write to your politicians and tell them that they need to step up and support ukraine and they need to do it right now not in a week not in a month but tomorrow today and tomorrow and that uh, i think those two things um, um i would ask all canadians to to join us in doing that uh, it's ucc.ca oris zakoldowski is the senior policy advisor for the ukrainian canadian congress uh oris uh i wish you the best in your work thank you sir this is the shift podcast Joining us from Ottawa is uh, Dr. Balkan Devlin uh, to help us understand more of what is going on. He's a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, he leads the transatlantic program. Balkan's been with us here on the shift a few times of late and joins us now. Uh, Dr. Devlin, thanks for spending some time so late with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Shane. I wish we uh, were able to speak in more uh, nice subjects. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't even really know where we go with this because this is your expertise, not mine, uh, Dr. Devlin. The reality is, is that we talked about this. We talked about what was coming and what was coming next. And, um, you know, history seems to have uh, repeated itself with Russia has attacked, uh, started a conversation or excuse me, started an attack of some fashion on Ukraine. And I would like to clarify some earlier information that we had. Technically, there was no formal declaration of war by the governments. It is definitely an act of war, and Putin has called it a special military operation. 
Dr. Devlin, we've got an awful lot of different countries, you know, with Crimea and everything else, with the Russians are involved. There's a lot of people moving. What do you see that's going on here? Um, I mean, one thing is that you know, nobody, you know, recently declares wars anymore, and this is as close as it gets when Putin made that um, speech, which uh, seems like pre-recorded on February 21st, uh, and then just released tonight as the attacks started, and it, it follows the expected, in a way, uh, military uh, operations, uh, in the one sense that it starts targeting uh, command and control systems. Uh, through missile strikes and stand-up strikes. Uh, it, it preceded earlier in the day with cyber attacks against uh, Ukrainian uh, government websites and banks. Uh, it continued with the missile attacks. Um, there are reports of amphibious landings uh, on the coast of, of Black Sea, uh, you know, ranging from Mariupol on the, on the east to Odessa on the west. Um, and, the, the second, and then now there are reports of, of tanks and troops uh, going through both the eastern part of the country, uh, through Donbass, as well as from Belarus. So it is actually following uh, what the normal the military playbook would be. Shock and awe, targeting um, military command and control systems, trying to uh, you know, de- decapitate and, and, and paralyze uh, in the Ukrainian military, followed by, um, uh, by, by ground invasion, and that seems to be happening right now. So, uh, Dr. Devlin, when you when we heard from Putin in that uh, TV release about anybody who steps in um, will um, be met with repercussions that the world has never seen before, that is incredibly strong rhetoric in your history of study with this. Um, that's about as strong as it gets that I can recall. You're the expert. What do you hear there? Well, you know, I, that's, I think, quite a you know, uh, clear, in you know, a very thinly veiled threat of, um, of a nuclear war. Basically, that's what he's, he's suggesting. He said you know, uh, preparations have been made, decisions have been taken. Uh, that's really, you know, a, a very, very thinly veiled threat of if you decide to interfere, and this is particularly uh, you know, aimed at the United States, we are willing to uh, risk a nuclear war. So that was his. Um, his his threat to rest uh, rest of the world and one other thing in that speech that really uh, makes me much more concerned and pessimistic about the ongoing ongoing war is that he made these claims of uh, he wants to demilitarize and in his terms denazify Ukraine he's calling a, uh, the a, a state with a, with a Jewish Ukrainian uh, president uh, a, a Nazi state and aimed very clearly, uh, regime decapitation, regime change in Kiev, uh, and a complete vassalization of Ukraine. So this is not going to be limited to the Donbass region, unfortunately. Like we talked, uh, you know, very recently, we talked about three different scenarios with you. Uh, the, the the least bad option was the limitations limiting to this 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 invasion to to Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine. It seems like that's not gonna gonna be the the, the point. The, the point will be the capitulation in Kiev. The point will be the government uh, regime change in Kiev, and unfortunately, all other sort of purges and uh, potential killings uh, and, and and similar that will follow uh, an attempt to change a democratically elected uh, government in Ukraine. And that's 
that's very, very pessimistic, unfortunately. When we talk about this, um, Dr. Balkan Devlin, about um, what is happening, and we look backwards in time, one of the things you and I have done in our conversations here on The Shift is we've been able to sort of look backwards in time, right, to... to um, mm-hmm to things that have happened in the past. And, uh, you know, this is sort of the same old, same old when it comes to, you know, the way things that roll out. Not a lot of surprises here. One thing I've noticed, though, cameras. Cameras are everywhere. If we remember back to, you know, the um, Iraq War and the embedded journalists and all those cameras that were there, that was information that was pretty well filtered. A lot of these traffic cameras and all these things have already been on some of the the news channels showing just a basic traffic camera with a transit bus and a car and a tank going down the road. Are we going to get a whole new look at this um, than we ever have before? Because it seems like with Ukraine, it's going to be hard to filter this information as it comes out. Yes. I mean, I think that we will be getting a whole different level of granularity in terms of how a modern major war is taking place. Um, but it, it also you know, poses two, two basic problems. One, uh, because of the content, there will be a lot of this information, a lot of sort of recycled videos, altered videos that will be, that aims at you know, shaping the narrative, uh, creating you know, the diversions, uh, creating disinformation from the Russian side. So that's that's one one trick. So it's uh, very important actually when people share things on Twitter and other places to be really careful about what what they're uh, what they're sharing. The second thing is of course the availability of those videos will bring in the, the this this war to everybody's uh, you know uh, living room in a much more clear way. And we're talking about a major war in Europe. This is not a you know. Uh, a small skirmish uh, happening somewhere out there. This is in the middle of Europe, a major war, unfortunately, that will result in several hundreds, perhaps thousands of deaths or more. So we will witness it. We will see it in our in our living rooms as we watch those videos and as we watch those uh, those tanks roll in, as, as those missiles uh, are fired and as those bombs uh, bombs fall. Um, what will be the political implications for that on how our societies, Western societies, European societies react to Russian aggression, uh, react uh, to the plight of, of Ukrainians is something to be seen. But I think it will have a major impact on how our governments um, will uh, will react uh, uh, to, uh, to, to this aggression. Um, in the morning... We are going to hear from all of the leaders around the world that are going to say, um, we do not condone this, this needs to stop, and they're going to say all that stuff, and then they're going to talk about sanctions. I mean, too little, too late. I mean, there's cryptocurrencies in the world today. Yeah. Uh, oil is in demand, man. It does an awful lot of uh, awful lot of negotiating for itself. So we are going to see an awful lot of more lip service be given to this politically in all these things. What does it take now, um, Balkan? Does it take just uh, action and sit and wait? Like, wh- I don't even know. What do we do now? Do we just sit and watch? You know, I, I agree with I agree your frustration, and I'm afraid you, you might be right in terms of a lot of lip service, but not much real action. Um, to be frank, there is no appetite on the Western, uh, Western governments to be involved in militarily today. So I think the best we can hope for our governments to do, and I'm not even sure they will be doing this, is 
to increase uh, you know, weapons uh, support and, uh, and transfer to Ukraine, immediately uh, freeze and seize the, uh, the properties and bank accounts of oligarchs, expel them and their families from our countries, immediately impose oil and gas sanctions on Russia and freeze Russia out of international financial institutions, block them up from SWIFT, those will have domestic consequences here, yes. It will mean higher gas prices, it will mean higher inflation, etc. But I think it is important to uh, show that we are willing to put uh, our money where our mouth is and stand with Ukrainians, at least if we are not going to fight uh, with them and they are fighting alone and they will be fighting alone and they will be dying for them for their own countries, the least we can do is to support them and deny the resources, the financial resources, to the aggressor to pursue and prosecute this war further. Uh, thank you, Balkan, for uh, staying, staying up late uh, with us and uh, sharing the information on the shift. I'm uh, unfortunately uh, sure that we will be speaking to you again very soon. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Thank you for listening to The Shift. Dwayne Bratt is a professor of political science, Mount Royal University, and joins us from Berlin. Uh, Dwayne, notice that you were on the Twitter. Um, how's everything in Berlin for you right now? Thanks for being here. So we were at the Brandenburg Gate uh, a couple days ago, um, just after Russia went into Donbass. And the Russian embassy is right by the Brandenburg Gate. And I saw this demonstration uh, against the embassy. Um, and then last night, they um, changed the colors of the Brandenburg Gate to the Ukrainian flag. This was all before the invasion into Western Ukraine, which occurred just at dawn this morning. And mm -hmm. so the, the mood in, in Berlin has been anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine, uh, pro-peace. Uh, but it's it's very quiet here now. It's uh, it's it's almost a state of disbelief that even though this had been expected, anticipated, feared, now it's actually happening. Well, we've been sharing on the shift earlier on to put some context of how close you are, Dwayne Brad. When you're in Berlin, uh, just a straight west drive, it's about thirteen hundred and sixty-eight kilometers, according to Google Maps. And just to yep. put that into context, that is closer than Toronto to Thunder Bay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still a fair distance away, but this is, you know, the beginning of a, of a major war on the European continent. Mm -hmm. um, politically, all you know, the political science and the history of things that happen in Europe. Um, there are so many nations that are close by that are affected by this. Obviously, there's. There's, um, you know, Russia is using some proxy nations close by too to bring troops in. Belarus, um, yeah, yeah, Belarus. So, what do you and you know, Crimea, which that would be, you know, technically Ukraine, but now Russia. But what would uh, what what does your political science hat see going on here that we need to know? So right now it is focused on Ukraine, but uh, there are hundreds of Canadian troops uh, as part of a NATO operation protecting Latvia which is further uh, north uh, from Ukraine, but shares the, the Russian border, because there are concerns, because there's been a massing of Russian troops against the Baltic states, as well as, as Ukraine. 
just to kind of keep them there instead of being diverted to to Ukraine. So basically, the entire border, uh, Russian border with uh, with its neighbors, um, is uh, is in jeopardy uh, right now. Um, it, it has become apparent over a number of years that Vladimir Putin may not want to necessarily reconstitute the old uh, Soviet Union, but he wants to make sure that the former components of the, the Soviet Union remain as Russian vassal states. That would explain the intervention into Georgia in 2008, um, the support of Lukashenko in, in Belarus, and his attacks in uh, first the Crimea of Ukraine in 2014, and now um, the, the western part. Um, and, and there have been explosions and, and bombings in Kyiv. And so I think he wants to see the dismantlement of Ukraine, either as an independent country or just turning it into a, a new Russian colony. Uh, Dwayne Bratt, political science, uh, scientist, Canadian from MRU, who is in Berlin right now. Let's talk money, Dwayne. Markets are getting crushed. Futures are getting crushed. The Russian trade index is down like 60% or more. Um, the Moscow index is more than 50%. The price of oil is over $100. This changed quickly. Is the money going to be enough with sanctions? We'll have to see. I mean, the two major areas where they could very well target uh, sanctions against Russia are Nord Stream 2. That is the major natural gas pipeline that was built from Russia to Germany. Um, the previous Earlier this week, the uh, German Chancellor uh, Scholz uh, suspended certification of that pipeline. So it is built, but it is not uh, funneling gas through. The question is, will they, they terminate it? Because, but Germany has become quite dependent on Ukrainian natural gas. So uh, mm-hmm. while the Biden administration is, is arguing to, to cancel Nord Stream uh, 2, uh, we're not seeing that completely out of uh, Germany yet. Although the foreign minister this morning did promise massive economic sanctions, I would think that would have to include the pipeline. The other major sanction they could use is the SWIFT banking system. That allows currency uh, and international transactions to go through. That would be a major isolation. And so I think the West, through economic sanctions, can punish Russia, Mm -hmm. but that does not help the Ukrainian people today. Dwayne Brad, political scientist, MRU in Berlin. Thank you, Dwayne, for jumping on with us here and helping us understand the tone of what you're going through. Travel safely, my friend. Okay. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.